Before we start this meeting of the Graham Norton Book Club, I just need to warn you that there is some rather fruity language. Nothing too terrible, but I just thought you should know. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, it is I, Graham Norton, offering you a very warm welcome indeed to this meeting of my book club. Our shelves runneth over with books to discuss and stories to dissect, and I'm not doing this alone. To help me find a way through the plots as they thicken is knower of all things book, Alex Clark. Hello, Alex. Hello. How are you? I'm very well. What have you been up to? Where have you been going? What's going on? I've been going everywhere. I was in Manchester, then I was in Cheltenham, then I was in Cambridge, then I was in London, back to Cambridge, and then I drove back to Ireland. Well done you. Uh, Who did you meet that was fascinating? Absolutely fantastic people. I did a celebration of the late Barry Cryer with his son, Bob Cryer, and with Jack D. And I did an event in celebration of the posthumously published A Memoir of My Former Self by Hilary Mantel. It's a collection of her non-fiction writings at the British Library in London. And we had wonderful actors who had appeared in the stage versions of Wolf Hall, Oscar Pierce and Lydia Leonard, and the director of that production, Jeremy Herron, and it was absolutely marvellous. But you'll never guess what happened. Oh, uh, you all got bedbugs. That is the kind of thing I believe that happens in London, but thankfully not, although time will tell. But I really don't suppose Woody Harrelson has come to an event in celebration of Hilary Mantel at the British Library, but lo, it was he. Wow. I know, right? So he's a Hilary Mantel fan or lost? Well, I think he possibly knew somebody who was appearing on stage, but he did come up and say, thank you, that was, that was really great. I really enjoyed that. And instead of saying, well, you know, Woody, let's talk about Hilary more, I just went, thank you very much, and ran off. I was starstruck. And did he shout after you, and I love the book club podcast too? Well, I think he probably yes, did. I, I think he did. I skated off quite quickly, but I would... I would be amazed if he hadn't. Well, let me tell Woody that uh, our featured book this time is Kamala Shamsi's story of two lives intertwining, Best of Friends. And here to talk about it are four very matey clubbers. Uh, Simon, who chose the book for us, uh, Shivan, Gavern, and Katie. Hello to you all. Hello. Hi, Hi Graham. Hi. 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 Uh, Katie, have you gone all Wim Hof on us? More like, ah! (laughs) I'm very much not the stoic outdoor swimmer, but I do swim outdoors in the docks in East London. It's actually really lovely, very cathartic. Is that the right word? Cold would be another word. (laughs) (laughs) Bloody freezing. And Gavern, you you come to us with prizes. Yeah, actually, um, my former university, Liverpool University, awarded me with an alumni prize. But I didn't realise how big it was because it was like there were people on the stage there that created equipment, like robot equipment, that can fix a knee in 37 seconds. There was somebody who's literally fed the world. Oh. Yeah, there's about three or four of us on the stage there looking at each other like, what, what are we doing here? You know, it wasn't imposter syndrome. <laughs> but um, it was lovely. It was absolutely lovely. I enjoyed oh, it. Oh, congratulations yeah. to you. And, uh, and Shivan, do you still have a job? Because... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I still have a job. Yeah, we had an offset inspection at my school uh, the week before half term. Uh, so it was kind of panic stations for a few days, but it went surprisingly well. And we'll find out in the, in 30 days time or so what the actual outcome was. Does everyone go around just madly tidying up and sort of air freshening things? and Shredding papers. It's <laughs> what I sort of imagine, like your family coming just before Christmas, kind yeah. of kicking stuff under the, you know, under the art cupboard. Let's just say that they offered us free pizza, I think, 9pm oh. on the Thursday, which is not the usual Thursday night routine. <laughs> 
And and so, Anna, how busy are you? Are you in the? Where are you in the life cycle of uh, the Bradford Festival? The life cycle is currently programming next year. Did you know it's a Byron anniversary? I'm very excited about this. I can't seem to get anybody else excited about it, but I am. I'm excited. Yeah. Saima, with my programming for festivals hat on, I too am enormously excited about it because it says doozy of an event that everyone will want to come to, doesn't it? Absolutely. All right, off you go. No fighting. Uh, we'll speak to you in a little bit to see if Best of Friends is your pal for life or on your block list. After we've spoken to Kamala Shamsi herself and after Alex has given us her three of the best. And Alex, I believe there's a link, but not necessarily the one we might expect. Well, I did think I can't just do books about friends. I mean, they are legion uh, and wonderful. Elena Ferranti, a very obvious example. But I loved that part in the book, which we'll no doubt discuss later, where Mariam and Zara's friendship as teenagers, uh, compounded by all sorts of things, but also their love of, of trashy books, we might say. No judgment implied by that. But we all have those books that we read when we were quite young, possibly too young to be reading them, which opened the entire world of adult behaviour to us. And I thought I would think of three of those. It does date me slightly, but on the other hand, I think they're books for the ages. Ooh, I'm sensing rudery in our future. <laughs> uh, in the meantime, here are some words of historical comfort. There are fewer psychopaths in Emperor of Rome than you might expect from the movie image of Imperial Rome. This is not to deny that the Roman world was, in our terms, an almost unimaginably cruel place of premature death. Leaving aside the hundreds of thousands of innocent victims of plague, needless warfare or collapsing sports stadia. The brilliant classicist Mary Beard will take us on a tour of Roman emperors later on in Talking Books. So, time for Best of Friends. It's Karachi in the late 80s and the last days of the military dictatorship. But 14-year-old Mariam and Zara aren't that into politics. They're thinking about exams and George Michael and which boys they like, the centre of each other's worlds. Their personalities and their backgrounds are very different. Mariam's family is wealthy. She's all set to inherit their lucrative leather goods business and, with a secure future, she's more interested in pushing a few boundaries. Zara's family can't buy her a place at a prestigious Western university, and her father's pro-democracy leanings have come to the notice of the regime. She is studious, totally focused on academics and finding a fulfilling career. Then, one evening at a party, they get into the wrong person's car, and the decisions they each make have a huge impact on the course of their lives. We meet them again in London 30 years later. Mariam is a successful tech entrepreneur and Zara the head of a civil liberties foundation. They are still close friends, but the consequences of that night continue to reverberate through their lives, setting off a chain of events that will finally show up the differences between them. Kamala Shamsi's seventh novel, Home Fire, won the UK Woman's Prize for Fiction in 2018. Best of Friends is her eighth. When we spoke, I began with when she'd come up with the idea for the book. I think the idea probably came to me, oh God, a quarter of a century ago. Um, I was in my early 20s and my sister, who's two years older than me, said, you know, the, the friends we make as adults are our friends because we have something in common. 
but our childhood friends are our friends because they've always been our friends. It stuck with me. And as the years went on, it starts to seem more and more true that I would look around at my friends and the ones who, you know, I came to know as adults were sort of roughly doing the same things as me. They were sort of writers or journalists or academics and roughly saw the world in the same way. And my childhood friends from Karachi just were on absolutely different planets. You know, they were investment bankers. They might vote for the Tories, you know, all kinds of things. And yet there was a sort of intimacy and bond between us. I was really interested in 2016. I suppose that's when it went from being an idea to something I wanted to put in a novel. In 2016, between Brexit and Trump, you suddenly heard a lot of people having these conversations where they were saying, you know, there's this person I'm really close to, whether it's an old friend or a colleague or a family member, but now we just can't speak to each other anymore. So I want to take a really, really old friendship with very deep divisions and put it under some stress. And those divisions, how did you kind of play that in a way? Because, you know, they are, these two women are at extremes. Uh, Did you kind of try to kind of rein them in so they didn't stretch credulity that they could still be friends? I think nothing in childhood friendship stretches credulity. I knew what I had to do was to make that childhood friendship strong enough, that you understood that at an incredibly formative moment of their lives, they were the centre of each other's worlds. And even then they knew they had differences. But, you know, when you're 14, what matters most is you both love George Michael, for God's sake. Yeah. But also because they grew up in Karachi together and then they moved to London. And I also wanted that to be a part of it, that they carry each other's childhood and early years and all those memories of the place and people they've left behind. To me, the most crucial part of the novel in understanding their friendship is one bit when one of them, Zara, is very angry with her friend, Mariam. And she calls up her father, who's in Karachi, and who's now, you know, he's quite old. Um, And he said, yeah, I know she has her problems, but, you know, the day your mother and I have agreed that the day one of us dies, the first call the other one will make will be to your childhood best friend, Mariam. Yeah. And she has promised that whatever she's doing, she will drop everything. She'll buy two plane tickets and fly back to Karachi with you because she won't let you make that journey alone. You know, there are differences and then there's that. And what was it like uh, inhabiting the the younger girls? Was that an easy leap for you? Do you remember vividly what that felt like? For a while I'd been thinking, how strange that I've written all these novels. I mean, this is my eighth But I had never written about that moment, which was so crucial in my life when I was 15 years old, and the two of them are 14, and 11 years of dictatorship in Pakistan ended, and this 35-year-old woman, Benazir Bhutto, became elected prime minister. And to be a girl in that moment was extraordinary, because you really did feel, God, anything is possible for a girl. And I, re- I was itching to write that. Uh, Saima, who chose the book for the book club, she's got some questions. Uh, she is interested in that word that Mariam uses, girl fear. And Saima says she's never come across that word before, um, but finds it so relatable. And she just wants you to talk about where that term uh, comes from and, and what inspired it. A lot of women talk to me about that phrase, and, and it is an invention of the novel. I don't remember a moment, Graham, when I didn't know that because I'm female, that my body is a possible site of violence. And it's an interesting thing because, you know, 
young men get beaten up. Terrible things happen to young men. But I know from all the boys I grew up with that there isn't that same sense of terror located within what can happen to you. And we learn it so early on. Even now, you know, I live in London and I love to walk through the parks. I walk through Primrose Hill and Regent's Park and Hampstead Heath and all of that. And the moment the sun goes down, those areas become no-go areas. And I look at men in their little jogging shorts running into the parks and I feel this incredible envy. And I wanted to write about that, about being very, very young and just becoming aware of this fear that always inhabits you, that radar that is up, listening for footsteps behind you or the shadows ahead of you. Simon is also interested in uh, politics, and uh, she says politics is never far away from the lives of your characters. Mariam and Zara's stories shaped by politics. What inspired you to intertwine the personal and the political uh, to feature so frequently in your in your work? If you grew up in a world where the political world is so deeply present in your life, you do understand that it is a very personal matter, and you think of it as a storyteller. So. If you're going to ask me, when I first realized dictatorship was bad, I think I was five years old and we were probably a few months into military dictatorship. And my parents and sister and I were going up to the north of Pakistan to visit my uncle who was under house arrest for being a pro-democracy politician. That's not why I knew military dictatorship was bad. Not because my uncle was under house arrest, but because on the way up, we had stopped for a night somewhere and Little House on the Prairie was supposed to be on TV. I turned on the TV, you know, this was the highlight of my week, and the dictator, Zial Haq, was addressing the nation. He basically <laughs> took over the time when Laura Ingalls was supposed to be on my screen. And, you know, I just thought, well, he has no understanding or consideration for what's important. And I, I loathed him. Yes, it's deeply political, but it's also how it happens to children and how, you know, it gets so deep in your, your lives in these ways that have to do with who you are and where you're sitting. So, yeah, it's always been there. And could you, I'm not saying you should, but could you sit down and continue this story? Do you know in your heart and mind how Mariam and Zara do continue their friendship? It's a very odd thing. I finish a novel and I have absolutely no idea what will happen next. And then I find myself sitting almost like a reader of the book and trying to guess And of course, I come from the position of I really know these characters. There is this way in which I finish a novel and I have this sense of mourning because when I've finished it, that's when it stops being mine. And then very quickly following on the heels of that, there is the opposite of mourning. There's a sense of joy that it's when it goes out in the world and readers like Saima pick it up and, and in some way make it their own. So I'm always very, very interested when readers come to me and say, this is what we think happened next. And I love the certainty some readers have. I mean, with, with Best of Friends, there are readers that have absolute certainty in completely opposite directions about what is going to happen after. I don't have that certainty at all. Isn't that interesting? Uh, there's some questions we ask everybody. Is there a book that you remember turning you on to reading? Were you a very uh, bookish little girl? I was incredibly bookish. The thing they don't tell you about dictatorships is they're very, very boring. Um, and, you know, there's not a lot going on in, in the world of, of culture and life. And, and so the two avenues were watching cricket on TV and reading. And I used to read all the time. So I don't remember a moment 
when it wasn't central to my life. So if I can think of the first book that I deeply and passionately loved, it was Peter Pan. I remember being in the car with my mother. It's one of my earliest memories. We live quite near the coast in Karachi and she would point out to the sea and there were these rocks which sort of looked almost like giants rising up from the waves and she'd point and say, that's Neverland. Oh, wow. And of course I knew that Neverland was third star to the right and straight on till morning. But at the same time, <laughs> it was also right there off the coast of Karachi. And and when did you start writing your own stories? Was that also a, a young endeavour? Yes, it's horrible. I was 11 years old. Wow. My best friend and I both had pet dogs who had died. Um, and this was a terrible loss for both of us. And we wrote a novel called A Dog's Life and After. In fact, it was The Dog's Life, comma, and after. And we were 11, and I'm very impressed now when I think about it, of that comma. Does it still exist? It does still exist, yeah. Let's just say it's quite good for 11. <laughs> uh, the next book we want to know about is uh, basically a, a book that you feel should have had more attention when it came out. I mean, it's a book that had some attention and won the Goldsmiths Prize, but I think it should have had much more. Um, it's a novel called Sterling Carrot Gold by Isabel Widener. It's a fantastic, zany novel, unlike anything else. It starts with matadors in Camden Town. It goes on to spaceships that are only constrained in their time travel by what is visible on Google Maps. It's sort of <laughs> Doctor Who meets Hieronymus Bosch. And at the same time, it's a deeply, deeply serious look at Britain today and many of its problems. And it sort of shows that in the moment we're now living in, surrealism is much better than satire um, at tackling what's going on. In addition to being incredibly serious, it is so much fun. It's like a roller coaster ride without the motion sickness. <laughs> Ideal. And the final book is the one that you admire so much, you wish you'd written it yourself. I mean, the truth here is... There are two truths. And one is, I always wish I'd written better versions of my own novels. But I also think that somewhere deep in the heart of every novelist, there's probably a little voice that says, if only I had written War and Peace. <laughs> <laughs> you know, why can't I have written the perfect novel, which is the novel? I had a great uncle who read and knew about, I don't know, eight or ten languages. Um, he taught himself Russian while he was a prisoner of war in the British Indian Army in the Second World War. And he was very fond of me, and he never read a single word I wrote in fiction. And he had the unimpeachable explanation, once you've read War and Peace in Russian, everything else will be a disappointment. Kamala Shamsi on her Tolstoy Envy and her own book, not quite as long as War and Peace, Best of Friends. So, Alex, I love the idea that we're now being inspired by bookshelves of people who are themselves in books. Oh, I love fictional bookshelves. I mean, there is a link to reality because I think when you're a reader, when you're young, you want to read all sorts of things. And you are, of course, particularly excited by sort of romping good stories. And especially if they contain a little bit of gentle titillation, mm. a sense of the adult world that you perhaps don't quite understand, but you know is quite thrilling and probably you shouldn't be reading it. All right. Which is the first one you found hidden away? There's so many I could have gone for. I mean, I just had my short list was a very long, long list, but we've mentioned Jilly Cooper before on the podcast, haven't we? And we've had her as a selection. Yes. Uh, we've talked about Jackie Collins a bit. So I've gone for Shirley Conran's Lace. 
Why would you not from 1982? And I remember thinking how thrilling it is that a person could be called pagan and that you might have another person who's called Maxine and that all these people might be your friends and you might meet them in a grand hotel and they'd have flown in from all corners of the earth. It was just not the way of life in Kingston-upon-Thames. I can tell you that. So that was very thrilling for me. And the idea that you have a girl who is the heroine of the book who actually has to find out who her real mother is. And she has to select from these these women who appear in front of her, these successful women. And it has, of course, much remarked on, given rise to the wonderful line, which one of you bitches is my mother? I must say, I, I only came to Lace God, about 10 years ago and I loved it. <laughs> I can't, what was it like reading it as a, well, I'll, I'll say 30-year-old? Adult. Let's just say adult. <laughs> and I really enjoyed it because, you know, you kind of think, oh, this is rubbish, but it's so enjoyable and pacey and twisty and turny. I just adored it. Absolutely adored it. Good old Shirley. All right, number two, please. A book that I just adored when I was a teenager, Colleen McCulloch's The Thornbirds. Many will remember its screen adaptation, which is, of course, the case for a lot of these books. They lend themselves so brilliantly to glossy adaptations. You know, it's Drogheda, not in Ireland, but in Australia. It's a sheep station. It's Catholic, an Irish Catholic family. And there's a priest, the original hot priest is in it. But it is all about this young girl. And I actually think it was one of the first times that I really did understand that there could be a bit of grappling involved and that it could be very nice with the right person, but you you didn't want to end up with a wrong one. Or a priest. Or a priest for (laughs) for other reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Very good. And our third choice, please, Alex. I thought I'd better throw in something with a sort of other dimension. Uh, But Herman Wooks, The Winds of War, uh, if you remember that, originally published in 1971. He also wrote books like The Cane Mutiny. And of course, very nice to pretend you're learning something, isn't it? When you're you're reading a big kind of bodice ripper, you know, four generations of passion and power type novel. But this is set in Berlin, a lot of it, as the Second World War approaches. And it is about a naval officer, Pug, Pug Henry. Um, One thing I'd forgotten until I went back to it, which I think, you know, you are obviously a luminary of the radio, but you're not called Talkie Tudsbury, are you? (laughs) And there is a radio personality in this book called Talkie Tudsbury. What could be better? Uh, I think I was truthfully not that interested in Pug and his marital difficulties and certainly not his naval strategy shenanigans, but I was very interested in Byron and Natalie, the sort of young lovers at the heart of the book. Uh, So there, there you have it, my enormous... Big doorstopper, you know, if you've got a wonky table, little do you double duty selection for this time. No, you've really brought me back with those titles because I can see all the book covers. <laughs> do you remember Leon Uris? What a huge yes. star he was. <laughs> Everyone absolutely. had a Leon Uris book in their house. Even if it hadn't been read, they had it in their house. Jonathan Livingston Seagull. That oh, sort of thing. yes, I remember that. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Young people are now scratching their heads. Uh, thank you very much, Alex. And if you've been too busy trying to flatten out the corners of the naughty pages before the kids find them, don't worry. Help is at hand. Just visit the Amazon or Audible website, search for The Graham Norton Book Club, and you'll find our webpage with all of the books that get mentioned on the podcast.
It's time to talk about best of friends. Joining us to do that are teacher and YouTuber Shivan Davis. Hello. Hi, Graham. How are you doing? Oh, not too bad. Uh, Ex-bookseller, now literary agent, Katie Blagden joins us. Hello. Hi there. Former teacher, now social worker and timeline maker, Gavern Bennett. Hiya. Hi, Graham. And the mastermind behind the Bradford Literary Festival, Saima Aslam, MBE. Now, Saima, what made you think the book club might like Best of Friends? Having read quite a few of Kamala's books, when I read this one, I was just really struck by the friendship. And I think with the title, I'd picked it up thinking it would be almost a bit Joanna Trollope-like. And then you've got all this sort of simmering tension and you've got the political backdrop. I just thought it was a really excellent book. All right, uh, let's move on and find out what people thought about it. Uh, Gavern, how do you feel about this book? You know, I felt a bit ambivalent about the whole thing. I mean, I, I enjoyed the first half. I'm old enough to remember that time and I had schoolmates that were, when that was all going on. So I kind of related to it. And the second half, I really got into it. I really did. And I kind of like, it made me think about so many different things. You know, sometimes when you see people in positions of leadership, what have you, you don't know the story, you know, behind how they've ended up there. People make assumptions, don't they? So I just, there's a power of friendship. You know, sometimes you've got friends and sometimes you don't even know why you've got them. (laughs) 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 Just to backtrack, Gavern, you liked the first half and you liked the second half. Doesn't that mean you just liked the book? (laughs) Okay, let me rephrase that. I liked them for different reasons, for very different reasons. That's it. it. All right. Uh, Shivan, do you think both halves were as successful as each other? I preferred the first half. I think the first half, I was really captivated by the world building. I'm not old enough to remember the downfall of the dictatorship in Pakistan, but I, I obviously studied at school and, and the rise of Benazir Bhutto. And I really enjoyed the friendships and the way she writes about life under dictatorship for young people, particularly the injection of optimism, seeing a female prime minister. It lost me slightly in the second half, but only slightly. I think it wasn't as successful. Yeah. Well, let's stick with this idea of the, the two halves. Casey, did you prefer one to the other? It felt like very separate halves, interestingly. I totally I agree with Gavern in some ways where it's like, <laughs> I like the first half and the second half separately. No, and also, I mean, I don't, maybe just terrible schooling, but also we didn't learn anything about that period of history in Pakistan as well. And so I found that really fascinating. And I also love the way she wrote these two 14-year-old girls. So I think if I had to pick, definitely the first half was the more interesting to me, for sure. And, and did it resonate with you, that idea of, you know, young girls seeing a female leader? Yeah, massively. I think it's that thing where it's like, I can only imagine how inspiring that must have been to have come out of a dictatorship and then into a female leadership and I think the way she writes that sort of like really aspirational excitement that you can only get when you're like a politically motivated teenager and you're suddenly like yeah the world's changing and I'm at the forefront of it and you're sort of like before you get bitter and cynical I suppose (laughs) is that one of the things that appeal to you Simon that way she she does blend the personal and the political Yeah, it really did. And I think there was a personal link because I was actually in Pakistan on my school holidays, about to start my new grammar school. And we were due to fly back on the day that the plane blew up. Oh, wow. And it was was a massive deal for me because I couldn't start my school on the day that I was meant to. So I think there was that personal resonance, but also actually reminded me of the moment when Kamala Harris was elected in uh, the States. And I remember I sort of like after all that Trump period, actually saying to my daughter, I was so excited about the entire thing. And I said, you know, I have hope again. I actually feel like you will be able to do whatever you want. And I said to her steadily for the last couple of years, I have just been losing that hope and looking at you and thinking, oh, my God, what is your future going to be like? So, yeah, I, I think that it had a real personal resonance for me. 
Obviously, at the heart of this book is this friendship. So let's talk about that friendship. Uh, Gavron, you mentioned it there, uh, that idea of, you know, you stay in touch with people that you've nothing in common with. Did you believe that these two women were going to remain friends for as long as they have? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I heard the interview with the author as well. And she, she actually says, sometimes you've got friends that, you know, at any other stage you might in your life, they would not be your friend. <laughs> you just walk straight past them, right? And get away from them. But if you've got somebody that you've been connected to, a particular amount of profound experience, a life-changing experience, like in this book, yeah, sometimes you do keep them in your life. And yeah, there's all these kind of connections. That's why I related to the book. Because actually I thought of one particular friend I have. Well, I'm not going to name one here, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I won't be your friend much longer. Sometimes, now, sometimes I look at him and I think, How the, why the hell are you my friend? Why are we friends? I think he does too as well. I think we're going to And And Shiva, where do you start at this? Because I, it struck me that, yes, we can all be friends with people that we disagree with, but these women in adulthood are so extreme. Did, did you believe they could still be friends? I'm not, are they friends by the end of it? I'm not sure. They <laughs> well, but um, no, I think I did believe it because I think you can put political disagreements to one side and just try and maintain a friendship that's based around your childhood experiences yeah. in the way that Mariam and Zara do. But then I think Mariam becomes slightly caricaturist, slightly cartoon villainish, um, maybe three quarters of the novel in. And I didn't believe that you would stay friends with someone like that who's, who acts kind of in such an amoral way. But Katie, how do you feel? Because Zara's kind of the is almost is as extreme the other way she's kind of yeah. your civil liberties and you know i very much believed i guess because like Gavern have friends who you are just like completely different by the time you get to this age <laughs> they both feel quite extreme but i also think that nowadays people tend to be quite extreme it's kind of where we're at politically everyone is getting pushed further and further out from center but heading back to the, this kind of pivotal scene uh, in their youth, in the car, Saima, this sounds so simplistic, but would you not get over it? I think it's really interesting because in that context, it would be massive. And also, mm. it, it does actually mm. completely blow Mariam's life apart. Yeah. So, you mm. know, in terms of everything that she thinks she's going to do, everything that she holds dear. So, you know, if you look at that first part... This is the bit that she's really, really passionate about. And she loses all of that because of it. Gavern, talk about that figure. Uh, Jimmy, the driver of the car. How do you think he worked as a, as a plot device? No, no, I think he worked really well because one of the things I kind of related to in the book was, you know, when she met him later on, you know how sometimes people appear to be super cool and in control when you're 15? Right? <laughs> and they're like the person everybody wants to be like. And then you meet them later on and you realise, actually, they were always naff. <laughs> they were naff back then. <laughs> the jacket was never really that good. Right? Just, you were just 14. And, uh, you know, and uh, in these discussions, we do often mention things that are spoilers. So let's talk about that ending. Uh, friends or not friends? Katie? I think like any old, 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 old friends you can literally knife each other type of level of emotional hurt <laughs> and then suddenly be like, oh, I do actually need to talk to you about something. <laughs> you know, come back around. So I'd hope that eventually they came back around and were friends. Uh, Saima, what do you think? Do, do you think that fr- their friendship survived? I think so. I, I think I agree with Katie. I think there are s- certain people with whom it's such a deep bond that actually when it really matters, they're the people that you go back to. Uh, Shivan, do you think they aren't friends? 
I didn't think they were, but then that, that's just my way of reading. I, it felt like she was setting up for the second novel. And I know you asked that in the interview. It didn't sound like she had. Yeah, no, I don't think she has. Yeah. I, I read it as being a, the abrupt ending of a friendship. I, I can't see how you can recover from saying those levels of hurtful things. I think that's probably yeah. the end of it. And she's got a dog. She doesn't need friends. Uh, <laughs> it's time for scores on the doors, please. How likely are you to recommend this book to a friend out of 10? I'll start with you, Gavern. Um, I got this book... Six and a half out of ten, if I can do that. Yes. And would I recommend it? You know what? Thank you, Summer, for actually introducing me to this book. And I would recommend it to some of my friends. Some <laughs> of them. But I look at the friend first. So six and a half. Uh, Katie? I have to say I was a little bit disappointed with it because I loved Home Fire and I was really raring to go into this book and really wanted to love it as much as I loved Home Fire. But... There were moments of brilliance that it didn't come together for me in the way that sort of like gripped me. So for that reason, I'm going to give it a seven. But it's still like so accomplished. The writing is incredible and there's so much to love here, especially the girl fear thing. I was just like, oh, spot on. Love it. Uh, Shivan. I really, really enjoyed the first half and I think she's a brilliant writer. I was hooked up until maybe part two. And even part two, although it's not as successful, it's still comparatively really good so i'd probably give it seven or an eight i've already given my copy away so i've really recommended it to someone else oh well there you go and i've ordered home fire okay as well. mm. i was that impressed yeah home fire is great you'll love it and the the final score from uh, Saima. yeah i think uh i mean i really loved it when i read it i think i'd give it a nine and i would definitely uh well i said uh, recommended it to all of you i would definitely recommend it to other people <laughs> okay well thank you for discussing uh, best of friends time to find out what we'll be reading for next week and i think it's the turn of gavern to pick what have you got right um so we'll be reading chain gang all stars by nana kwame ajay brenya um so if the hunger games and the squid game had a child it would not look like this novel <laughs> right because um this is dystopia with like a real difference because there's love even amongst the murder and the mayhem there's love everywhere if anyone's vaguely interested in life, this is the book for you. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not vaguely interested in life. Very philosophical. Not really. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Gavern. That is Chain Gang All Stars by Nana Kwame Ajebrenya. And thank you very much for discussing Best of Friends. We'll talk to you along the way. Take care, clubbers. Bye. Bye. Thanks a lot. Bye. 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 Now, talking books. And this sounds like someone who knows what makes an evening go with a swing. His menus, so ancient writers tell, were ingenious. On some occasions, the food would be colour-coded, all green or blue. On others, it would feature delicacies that were exotic or revolting, even by upmarket Roman standards. Camel's heels or flamingo's brains with foie gras served to his pet dogs. Sometimes he indulged his nasty or juvenile sense of humour by inviting themed fellow diners, groups of eight bald men, eight men with one eye or with hernias, or eight very fat men who raised a cruel laugh when they couldn't all fit on the same dining couch. Mary Beard is a classicist and feminist who became more widely known through her UK TV series on Pompeii and the Roman Empire. As well as being a highly respected academic, she's a prolific writer, a successful blogger, and can often be seen and heard in the media, talking about everything from nudity in art to Miss World. She has a new book out, Emperor of Rome, Ruling the Ancient Roman World, for which she's done the audiobook. So we needed to talk to her about it. 
What, I wondered, put her on to writing about these ancient political leaders? People often get put off, I think, about Roman history because they think when you get to the empire, you have to know who each of these guys is, you know, when they ruled, you know, what they did. Well, truth is, you don't need to know that at all. Most Romans didn't know that at all. We don't know that about British kings. Come on, you know, Edward III, who was he? (laughs) Who knows? What I'm trying to do is to say, look... Let's think of the emperor in much more general terms. Let's not bother about when he was born or when he reigned. But let's say, what did he do? How did he spend his time? What was his sex life like? Where did he live? And I think going at Roman emperors that way, they become much more interesting, you know, and you find out not just about them, but you find out about the people who looked after their clothes, for which we have plenty of evidence, you know, yeah. the, the poison tasters at the imperial banquets. So we start to see him in his habitat, not just as a kind of individual posh man. One of the things you do in the book, you bust some myths. And I, I, I found it because it's history, you know, and people study history. Where do the myths come from? Why are there so many very famous stories about emperors that aren't true? Well, they partly come from what people said when these guys died. I mean, on a, you know, Roman history, just like any period of history, is a history written by the victors, by the winners. And at regime change, we know what people do, you know, when they'd been happily collaborating with a guy who's just been assassinated. They say, hmm, I was always a bit reluctant to go along with it. And do you know what? You know, do you know what he used to spend his spare time doing? I tell you, he used to skewer flies with his pen. Now, how weird is that, right? So these are stories which some of them might be true, some of them are exaggerated, some of them are as much fiction as a lot of celebrity gossip is fiction, but they're told partly in order to kind of situate, to blacken or to praise the emperor concerned after he's dead. And, you know, I think they're about forming an image. They're also about people's fears about emperors. You know, if you're ruled by, as you imagine, this guy, what are you afraid of that he might be like? Or the other thing is, what would you do? If if you could sleep with anyone in the world, who would you sleep with? That often produces a very lurid answer when it comes to emperors. How are you when it comes to the audiobook? Do you enjoy that process? <laughs> As a reader, you know, you're turning every page and you think, what happens next? You know, what did this person do? What did that ever? But you know it all. Do you start zoning out as you go through the book? Because, you know, this is old information for you. No, I, I, in a funny way, I think that you're sitting there in a recording studio with your headphones on in front of a mic and you've got somebody saying, oh, do you think you could do that bit again? Actually, it refocuses you. It is a, well, I'd like to say enjoyable. I'm not 100% sure it's totally enjoyable, but it's, it tells you something about your book you didn't know before. And you hear it afresh yeah. because, you know, most authors don't read out their chapters as they go to themselves. They should. <laughs> and do you think being a TV presenter has helped? Has that informed the way you do it? Oh, hugely. I mean, absolutely hugely, because I think, you know, people often say to me, God, it must be so dumbing down doing things on telly. And I think, no, it isn't. What telly really taught me was 
how to put over complicated ideas to people who didn't happen to know anything about the subject concerned. And that helps with the writing the book. It helps with reading the book out, you know, when you know where you've got to kind of put the emphasis. I feel hugely grateful for what people on telly have taught me because they've, you know, they've taught me how to communicate in a different way. I was, you know, damn good. And let's talk about the books you pick up. Um, What was the book that you remember turning you on to reading? I mean, it sounds like you you grew up in a very bookish household. (laughs) Well, sort of. My dad was a kind of historic buildings architect. My mum was a primary school teacher and, you know, books were on the agenda. That's a really hard one, but I... I think the one I'd pick would be Beatrix Potter's Story of a Fierce Bad Rabbit. It doesn't have any of that slightly saccharine sentimentality that things like the Flopsy Bunnies have. Uh, it's a story of a very bad rabbit who pinches a carrot of an unsuspecting nice bunny, doesn't even say please, and then gets his tail shot off um, by a man with a gun. Right? You know, it's kind of it's um, really X-rated for five-year-olds, and. I think why I remembered it was that it, it stuck in my head always as being as giving me the idea that books weren't meant to slightly upset you, that books weren't about places just where everything was nice and there was always a happy ending. And it really, really stuck. With me. What about a book that you find comfort in? Do, do, you, do you read academic books? Does that kind of make you feel safe and warm? No. You know, and I'd like to say, oh, well, it'd be Jane Eyre. Mm. You know, it'd be more likely to be a copy of Tatler or The World of Interiors, I'm afraid. You know, something really nice, glossy and utterly beyond my reach. <laughs> The world of interiors. I'm so with you there, Mary. And uh, and finally, finally, we want to know the name of the book that you give to everyone or that you think that everyone should read. Oh, that is quite an easy one because I think everybody should read Homer's Odyssey. You know, it is Greek epic, hugely formative of the whole of the Western tradition of reading and writing. The story of how Odysseus, Greek hero, gets back home after the Trojan War. But so many people are kind of put off it because they think, oh, God, this is, you know, not just a classic. It's a classic with a capital C and I'm not going to get on with this. And I think it is such an approachable work of literature. I mean, in a way, it's a road movie. It's how do you get home? It's about sleeping with people you shouldn't be sleeping with. And it's about asking what it is to be a good person. So I always say, you know, take the Odyssey and I'm taking it to my desert island. Mary Beard on bringing some Roman emperors back to life and a few of her own book loves. It is nearly time for us to follow the straight road home. That is a Roman reference. I didn't want you to miss it. But before we throw off our togas, audiobook insiderus and chartus mavidus hollius. No, enough of that, I think. Uh, Holly Newson has come down from Olympus with her prophecies on what is hot and getting hotter on the Audible and Amazon charts. Holly, what can you tell us? Well, one day I will get back to some fiction in the charts, but that is not today, as it's still all about the autobiographies. Um, One of the great all-time actors, Patrick Stewart, released his memoir, Making It So, this autumn. 
high in the overall chart and biographies chart in audiobook and print and on the most sold non-fiction chart in audiobook. It seems to be doing pretty well with the fans. I think Patrick Stewart reading any story would work for me. So if that's his own story, then great. Um, What I'm trying to say is that a Patrick Stewart narrated audiobook is just an undeniably good thing. So I can't see it faltering in the charts anytime soon. I know that voice. Fantastic. He was on the TV show recently. And uh, (laughs) I have to say, I don't know if you've read the book, but at least over half of it is his childhood. Right. Then you get on to kind of acting and stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, Okay. Uh, What's our one to watch this time? Well, I've been keeping my eye on the audiobook of Outlive, The Science and Art of Longevity by Peter Atiyah and Bill Gifford, as it's sticking around on the most read nonfiction chart. It's not got the most reviews, but there are many that are very, very positive, like ones titled Tremendous, Excellent and Outstanding. Um, Now, the blurb of this book is kind of vague for me. Like, you don't get many examples of exactly what might add up to a long life, but the authors are calling it Medicine 3.0. It's not going to be for everyone, but a long and healthy life is pretty appealing. Also, I'm loving the most gifted charts right now. So (laughs) the print version of this one is number one most gifted in sports training and coaching, which is either a present for someone with a specific passion or it's just a bit pointed. (laughs) I think I'm going to have to live for a really long time before I get around to reading this book. (laughs) It's uh, it's quite far down my pile. Uh, And finally, what have you got for us? Um, So finally, popular podcaster and millionaire Stephen Bartlett released a book with the same title as his podcast, The Diary of a CEO. And it currently just can't be beaten in print or audiobook on the business, finance and law chart. It's also been holding its place on the most sold non-fiction chart. I think, to be honest, he is a genius at marketing. I feel compelled almost against my will to listen to some of his podcast episodes after seeing his teaser videos on social media. So I'm not surprised that this one is sticking around. It's basically a lot of the lessons he's learned talking to people on his podcast wrapped up in a book. Ah, life lessons. Uh, Thank you very much, Holly. Don't forget, you can find details of all the books we talk about on our webpage. Uh, Just search for the Graham Norton Book Club on Amazon or Audible, and all the information you need will be right there. Our clubbers have gone off to find eight people who haven't heard of the Thursday Murder Club to invite to their next club or dinner party. So it just remains for me to thank my faithful centurion, Alex Clark, for helping me lead the legions. Uh, thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. Oh, I'm still thinking about those books. <laughs> I know, I know. There are many that we could get through. We may need a separate book club. Yeah, jumble sale, ahoy! <laughs> uh, just to remind you that this series of the Graham Norton Book Club podcast is available on Audible or wherever you get your podcasts so go on over and have a look and a listen and leave us a rating and a review and generally tell people they should swing by also don't forget to join us next time when our book is chain gang all-stars by nana kwame ajebrenya and none other than arnold schwarzenegger yeah really will tell us how to be useful till then happy reading listening and goodbye goodbye goodbye